1 through 15. In John chapter 5, looking at verses 1 through 15. And if you don't know me, I am uh, Josh Miller, one of the pastors here. And so I, uh, I don't do this often, but when I get to, it is a great privilege to bring God's word. And so uh, let's go to him now in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word, to dive in, to see you in it today. Would you give each one of us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth in your word? And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, there are a number of uh, statements that you might say are kind of like Christianese or religious type statements. Uh, I'm not going to comment on if I think these are true or not. I'm just going to throw some of them out. And uh, so one is cleanliness is next to godliness. Let go and let God. Fear ends where faith begins. God won't give you more than you can handle. The devil made me do it. Or you're not a bad person, you just do bad things. Right? You've probably heard all of these or at least some variation of these. But there's one that comes to mind that says this. God helps those who help themselves. Right? That is not in the Bible. And in fact is actually contrary. I think it's actually anti-God. Because over and over and over in the Bible, we see God is constantly helping those who are weak. Constantly looking out for the needy. Those who can't help themselves. And we see a man in our passage today who is in deep need. Who is in fact helpless. And so let's turn our attention now to the word. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One, was, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See? You are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. So as we dive into this passage, we're gonna, I just want to spend just a few moments looking at the setting 
which will be verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump into the four main scenes that help us see that Jesus is, in fact, the Lord of life. So the setting, right? Verse 1, it, says, it begins with, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. If you'd been tracking along uh, the, the sermons over the last maybe year that I've been going through these miracles of John, you would, you would notice that Jesus is a man on the move. He's constantly back and forth, Jerusalem to Galilee to Jerusalem. And now we see him coming to Jerusalem here in chapter 5. And it says, in fact, that he arrives at a time for the feast, but there's no mention of which feast it is. And it's not so important. It's just that the feast is what got him to Jerusalem. And as Jesus comes this time, it's, it's this kind of beginning of this conflict story between Jesus and these religious leaders that continuously builds throughout the rest of this gospel. He starts to do and say things that stick in the hearts and the minds of these religious leaders that make them want to kill him. And in fact, one commentator says, on a human level, what Jesus did that day, what he said that day cost him his life, and they never forgave him. And John Piper says, conflict, conflict in the ministry of Jesus is the furnace where the steel of his identity is forged, and in the fires of conflict, his glory is made to shine. So this passage, as we're going to see today, this is Jesus, and the conflict is building. It's arising between he and these religious leaders, and we see Jesus' glory come to shine as we see that he is the Lord of life. He alone is the one who gives new life. And look with me at verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. So this gate, it, it was in the northern wall of the city where sheep would be brought through, taken to the temple in, in preparation to be slaughtered. And there's this pool called Bethesda. And Bethesda means house of mercy or house of outpouring, which I think is so fitting that this is the place that we see Jesus pour out mercy by giving new life. Right, and it even kind of sounds like the beginning of a really nice uh, vacation you might take with your wife, where you're going to this resort, and there's this pool, this beautiful pool, and there's colonnades where you're resting underneath the shade. But in fact, it's not like that at all. Right, verse 3, it says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So it's not like going to Franklin Park these days where you're going to, well, you may not hear it much these days, but before COVID, when you'd go to Franklin Park and you would hear kids giggling and playing, going down water slides and, and see fountains in the pool, this is the exact opposite. You see people gathered, multitudes of people gathered. So it must have been a sad place, a hopeless place. And so you just have to ask the question, well, why are there so many people gathered at this pool? What's going on that this pool seems to be the gathering place for all those who are in great need? Well, you might have in your text, you might have noticed actually while I was reading, that it goes verse 1, 2, 3, and you would expect verse 4. Okay? There's not 
uh, at least for many of you, there's probably not a verse 4 up there in the block of text. It goes straight to verse 5. But there's a footnote. And the footnote probably reads something like this. Waiting for the water to move. So these lame were waiting for the water to move. For an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. So this is a a variant reading, this footnote you have. There are some manuscripts that that had this in there as verse 4. But since that, uh, I think the King James has that in there, perhaps even the New King James. But there are now uh, earlier more reliable transcripts that don't, or manuscripts that don't have this verse in there. So we think this is probably a scribe who has added this to help us understand why. But in fact, I don't think you need to be worried too much. Well, our, our, our manuscript's unreliable because it actually just validates what we read in verse 7, which we'll get to later. But we do see that these, these people, these invalids are here, whether it's by superstition or actual healing that took place, they believed that the waters, when they were stirred, that they would be healed if they could be the first to get in. And so just as these invalids at the pool were physically disabled, so are we too spiritually. Jesus shows us, even as we're going to see in these coming scenes, he shows us that he brings new life. And we're going to see this in four scenes. The first, which will be Jesus seeks. The second will be Jesus heals. Third, we'll see that Jesus' identity is questioned. And then we'll also see, finally, that Jesus' identity is revealed. So let's look first now to scene number one, Jesus seeks. Read with me again verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. So I think we we even need to ask ourselves, Why, right? Why is Jesus at this pool with the lame and paralyzed? Surely there's got to be other places, better places he could be. He could be at the temple. He could be teaching his disciples somewhere. But yet we find in John 5 here, we find him at this pool. I think it shows us. I think it shows us the heart of Christ, right? He is constantly going to the outcast, to those who are in need. Earlier in the gospel, we see Jesus is at this wedding when the wine runs out. They are in great need, and he turns water into wine. He meets this woman at the well in the heat of the day and talks to this socially outcast lady. He heals the dying son, and here in this passage today, we see Jesus is at this pool where the lame are gathered, where there's tens, if not hundreds, right? Our passage says a multitude of invalids, a multitude of people at this pool, and Jesus finds this one man. He singles him out. He seeks this man. And so why this man? What's special about him? Has he won Publishers Clearinghouse or found Willy Wonka's golden ticket or won the lottery? I don't think so. We don't know, in fact. It doesn't tell us why this invalid. 
But it does tell us, verse 6, Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And then I read this and I think, is is this the, the, the divinity of Jesus showing up where he just knows this man's story without even talking to him? Maybe. But maybe even if I know the heart of Christ where he's constantly seeking those who are in need, maybe he gets to know this man. Maybe he spends time with him to find out his condition. And then in verse 6 he says, do you want to be healed? Seems like a, a rather odd question to ask when isn't that in fact the very reason this man is there? That'd be like going and asking parents of a three-month infant, hey, would you like to get a good night's sleep tonight? Or going to the ICU at the hospital and, and talking to the parents of the child in the bed and saying, would, would you like your child to get better? It's like, yeah, Jesus, I think that's, yes, the answer, right? It seems obvious. Why wouldn't this man want to be healed? That's precisely why, why he's there. But yet, over and over in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus engaging people who are in need. And he's talking on one level, and they understand him on a different level. Right? Think about Nicodemus, where he asked Jesus, well, what do you mean by be born again? Does that mean I have to enter my mother's womb a second time? Or the woman at the well, when Jesus says, I could offer you living water, and she says, Jesus, what do you mean? You don't even have a bucket. I wonder if that's what's happening here, where Jesus is asking this man, do you really want to be healed? He's helping this man, I think, see his condition, that he is helpless and that he is hopeless, because you see the response in verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus is helping this man see his situation is absolutely hopeless. Right? His, this man thinks his only hope for being healed is being at this pool and getting in the water, and yet Jesus is saying the exact opposite. He's saying, I can bring healing to you. J.C. Ryle says about this passage, she says, friendless, helpless, and hopeless, he lay there by the waters, but derived no benefit from them year after year passed away and left him still uncured. No relief of change for, for the better seemed to come except from the grave. Right? The only hope this man seems to have after being there for 38 years longing to be healed is the grave. But yet Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? So not only does this question, I think, help this man see, not only are you hopeless and helpless, I think it also highlights Jesus' willingness and his ability to heal. Right? We see over and over in the life of Jesus that he came to lift up the weak and the weary, to help the lost and the hopeless. John 3.17 even says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus is helping this man see, I am willing and able. I'm seeking you out, right? Jesus even says, 
that in Luke 19, today salvation has come to this house for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Not only in this, in this man's day was Jesus seeking the lost, but even today Jesus seeks the lost. You may be here today and you may feel like you are at the end of your rope that you need someone just to give you new life, that, there, that, that there's something that you're lacking that must come from outside of you. There's good news. Jesus Christ, the Lord of life, he seeks the lost, he seeks the helpless and the hopeless. Maybe he's even pursuing you right now. Maybe he's pursuing you through these words of John 5. Don't turn from him. But you also might be a Christian, and you might be here thinking, well, this is great, right? This is awesome for those who don't know Christ yet to hear that there's new life in him. But let me also remind you, Christian, if you've placed faith in this wonderful truth that Jesus brings life and he seeks out those that he can give life to, you ought to be even asking yourself, what in the world did he see in me among billions of dead people? Spiritually dead people, why me? To which you have to respond with, I, I don't know. I don't actually have anything to offer God that he sees as so valuable that he is willing to save me, but yet he does anyways. He seeks you. By sending his son to die, he seeks you. By hear, you hearing the word of God and leading to conviction and brokenness of sin, he seeks you by giving you faith in Christ. So Jesus, he's the Lord of life. He seeks the lost. We're able to have life in him because he seeks us. Which brings us to our next scene. Jesus heals. Jesus heals. Look at verse 8 with me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Which kind of seems out of place, out of touch, right? This man who had been lame for 38 years, Jesus just says with his words, get up and walk. You might read this for a first time and, and actually think, well, Jesus might say something like, okay, well, I'm going to hang here with you. We're going to hang out, we're going to talk, and until these waters stir, and then I'll be the one that helps you get in, right, so you can be healed. This man is searching for healing, and so we, I think, even if we're thinking about who he is and his situation, we, we ought to have pity on this man. For 38 years, he's been an invalid, and there's a multitude just like him at this pool wanting to be healed, and they're doing the only thing that they know. The only thing that they think can bring them healing. This reminds me so much of people today. Millions of people, they're grasping and trying to hold on to anything and everything that will make them feel whole, that will make them feel like this life has purpose. Teenagers and men and women, this world is full of desperate people with broken hearts, some hungry for power or sex or money because they think it's going to bring them something, something that may satisfy their desires and make them feel whole. So many are looking for that pool 
to satisfy, looking for that pool that they think will bring healing. But those pools that we look to, they leave us wanting. And this man, 38 years, maybe for you, 18 years or 28 years or a lifetime. Are you still looking for that pool to heal you? And Jesus tells him, right, get up, take up your bed and walk. Because he says this, this, this pool cannot heal, right? There's nothing in this life that will heal your soul, nothing outside of Christ. And so this man, you even see, he, he doesn't cry out, he doesn't call out for Jesus, he doesn't even ask to be healed. He doesn't even know he's in fact in the very presence of God himself. Jesus sought him out. Jesus healed this man. Jesus gave this man new life. And what happens? He's healed. Right? It's not from the source that he, this man was searching from. It wasn't this pool, but it isn't salvation the same way for us. We, at one point or another, are searching for so many things that we think will make us well that will heal us, that will make us whole. And in fact, Christ sees us at our own pools and he seeks us out. Maybe even today, maybe even right now, you feel empty because you realize these pools that you've been seeking satisfaction from, in fact, don't heal you. Maybe you would answer the, the question of Christ, do you want to be healed? Maybe today, for the first time, you would even say, yes, I want to be healed from something outside of me. I need Christ. I need you. Right? This, Christ sought this man out. Christ healed him of his infirmities, even though he had nothing to offer. And guess what? Christ continues to heal he continues to give new life today. And verse 9, it says, And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed. Right? This healing, this salvation that God brings, this new life, it was instantaneous. There was nothing at all the man was required to do. Jesus doesn't say, well, let me refer you to a physical therapist. He doesn't say, well, you should try to be a good person, or you need to go and serve the poor. Instantly, at the word of Christ, this man is healed. And so there's, this is, it's a truth that I think we need to hear over and over and over. That there is nothing that you can do to bring yourself new life. You can't clean yourself up. You can't be good enough. That the only way is that Christ would give you new life. And in fact, it's, it's Romans 5, 6 that I think is so helpful. It says, for while we were weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. You had nothing. Just like this invalid, he had nothing. He was going to the only place for healing that he thought could heal. And yet Christ sees him helpless and hopeless and extends new life, gives him new life. Christ sought him out. Christ healed him. 
And now in our third scene, we're going to see that Jesus, Jesus' identity is questioned. Look at verse 9 with me. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Now, I don't know much about music. Really, I know nothing about music. Uh, I can't clap and sing at the same time. Um, it's just too difficult. And I actually meant to ask Quentin before service. Uh, I think it, the minor keys are the really hard, kind of fear-inducing keys. Is that right? Yes, I got it. All right. So if this were a movie... This is the time in the movie where the minor keys would be played and you would hear just this swell of, uh uh-oh, something's about to happen. What's coming? Right? The conflict is now about to emerge where Jesus is doing things or has done things that the religious leaders are about to find out about. They see this man, right, who has been healed, who's carrying his pallet, walking on the Sabbath. And you need to know that the Sabbath is a huge deal to the Jews. In fact, it's one of the highest priorities of their week that they would keep the Sabbath, that they would keep it holy, that they wouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. And so then the the question you ought to be asking yourself right now is, well, what's going on, this man walking and carrying his pallet, his mat? How is that a violation of God's law? Where is that in the Bible? Show me in the Bible where that is. And to which I would answer, well, I can't show you. It's not in the Bible, right? But over time, in effort to to obey God's word, rabbis would add their own rules, right? They would even create, uh, specifically about types of work, they created 39 specific types of work that were illegal on the Sabbath day. The 39th rule, the very last one, it said it was prohibited to carry something from one place to another on the Sabbath. That that was considered work, and therefore you're not keeping the Sabbath holy. Right? They had created these rules, these things that they wanted to, to do and keep in order to help them obey God's word, to help them obey God's law, which to, to that I would say, well, making things in your life to help you obey God's law, his rules, that's a good thing, in fact, right? Think about my family, my, my, just a, a couple of household rules that we have around technology. One is my boys, to, much to their dismay, are not allowed to play Xbox on Sundays, right? We just need a mental break from Xbox. They do. I don't play it. But then the other one is we don't allow kids to have technology in their bedrooms, right? No TVs, no computers, no Chromebooks, no cell phones. I mean, yes, Kids, youth, you actually can live without something in your bedroom that's technology. But the point is not to just have these rules that dad can put his thumb on them and say, you have to obey these in order to be holy and follow God. But we do have those rules to help them obey, to help them follow God, to help them pursue holiness. And so even though they don't like it, it's a rule that we have, but we don't As a family, we don't look down on others who say, yeah, it's okay to have a computer in your room or a TV in your room. It's just a thing that with our family, we want to to kind of set aside the bedroom to say this is no technology, 
to help them pursue holiness. That as my boys get older, that, that they would uh, in some ways be protected from temptations that may come by having technology in their bedrooms. And so rules like this that maybe we have in our life that we, we put in place to help us pursue holiness, these rabbis, these religious leaders had elevated these rules to say, if you violate these rules, you are also violating God's law. And so when this man who is healed, who's picked up his pallet, when they see this man, they are so concerned for their rules that they totally miss out on and fail to rejoice that this man has been given new life, that for 38 years he was lame and now he can walk. So instead of rejoicing, they're angry. You see this conflict, this tension rising, and so they question this man, and essentially they're asking, who has given you the authority to break these rules? Who is the person that's healed you and told you to get up and take up your bed and walk? They're questioning the identity and the authority of Christ. And this man, notice what he says in verse 11. The man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. All right, so essentially he's saying, well, it's, it's not my fault. I'm just doing what I was told, right? And I wonder if sometimes we are like these Jewish leaders. If we read scripture in an effort to obey scripture, we draw these boundary lines and then we say, well, if you violate these, you are violating God's law and you're not pursuing him. I wonder if we sometimes put these same expectations on others and sometimes we may fail. We may fail to recognize the work of God in someone, the, the new life that he's created in them that we fail to rejoice in that with them. That's exactly what we see here with these religious leaders. And so our first scene, we saw that Jesus seeks the helpless and scene two, we saw that Jesus heals the hopeless. We just saw Jesus' identity questioned and now, as we look to the fourth scene, we see Jesus' identity is revealed. These Jewish leaders, they, they didn't, they, they wanted to know who this man was that healed on a Sabbath. And in fact, they ask, verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Right, the tension continues to build. The conflict grows. And, and verse 13, now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Right, so he's, this man's around the pool when he's healed, and there was a multitude of invalids, and you can only imagine that this man who had been there 38 years must have been known probably by everybody that was lame there. And then one day, this stranger shows up and heals this man. You would think that it'd be a prime opportunity for Jesus to just start preaching the gospel, preaching the good news, and that many more would come to faith. But that doesn't seem to be what's happened, right? Somehow Jesus sneaks away, doesn't make a spectacle of himself. And then read with me again in verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. All right, so just let me tell you now, if you didn't already pick up on it, it's not a good idea to go turn Jesus in, okay? Don't do that. This man, Jesus healed this man, right? And this man is, is now going to these leaders and telling them what's happening. But we can't pass over the words of Christ here. He tells this man, sin no more. Sin no more. It almost sounds like that Jesus is saying, you're lame for 38 years because you have sinned. And so I want to pause for just a second and help us think, does every sin lead to some sickness? Or is, let me even reverse it the other way, every time you come down with a cold, or every person that you see in a wheelchair or using a, a walker or who is lame or blind, does that mean there's been a specific sin in their life that has led to that occurrence? To which, if we look at Scripture, the answer is not always. Right? If you were to look at John chapter 9 with this man who's born blind, the disciples asked Jesus, well, has this man sinned? And he says, no. He was born this way that the glory of God may be revealed through him. Right, so J.C. Ryle says, he says, sin was the original root and cause and fountain of every disease in the world. God did not create man to be full of aches and pains and infirmities. These are the things, these things are the fruits of the fall. Amen. You don't necessarily get cancer because of a specific sin that's happened in your life. That would be so crippling, right? Every time you get a common cold, to think, well, what sin was that? Or when I look at my family and I see my youngest son who was born with Down syndrome, if I, if I question what in the world brought that in his life? There are some things in life that sickness and death that are just a result of this being a fallen world. But at the same time, we shouldn't pass over so quickly. Because it does seem as though Jesus is saying to this man, there is a sin. But he doesn't tell us the specific sin. And if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 30, you would even see Paul warn the Corinthian church that they're taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he even says, some of you are sick and even fallen to death because of what they've done. And so, yes, there are times that sin leads to sickness and death, but we can't always say that every time someone is sick or dies, it is because of a certain sin. But it does appear that this man's sin has led to his being lame. And so I would even just ask this man or even ask you, right, would you be happy, would this man, after 38 years of being lame, would he be happy to simply be healed and yet still stuck in his sin? Think about it. If you're in this situation, your worst ailment, whether it's your knees hurt or you can't walk or your eyesight isn't what it used to be, would you be content just to simply be healed and yet still be stuck in your sin? Right, we see here Jesus is willing 
to make this man whole. He doesn't just offer himself as one who says, hey, I'll get rid of your physical maladies and infirmities, but I'm here to make you completely whole. Jesus is saying, you must take all of me. I must be Lord of your life, not just part of you that kind of makes your life, enhances your life and makes life better for you. You can almost hear Jesus saying, I've sought you out. I've healed you. Now get on with your new life. Forsake your sin, turn from it, and follow me. Come after me, right? Surely the one who can make you whole, surely he also ought to be obeyed in new life. So, so if you're here, if you don't know Christ yet, I want to ask you, are you willing to lay aside your life? Are you willing to turn from sin and follow Jesus? He stands ready to heal. He stands ready to give new life. And Christian, this is a very clear word to us as we follow Christ in new life. I want to ask you, is there a sin that you're clinging to? Is there a secret sin that you have secretly enjoyed and kept from everyone else that they would be floored if somebody found out that, that you'd be floored if somebody found that out about you? Let me plead with you today. Hear the words of Christ. Sin no more. Don't let it so easily entangle you that you would forsake it and that you would turn to Jesus. Because we also need to hear the next phrase in verse 14. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Right? Forsake your sin because if you don't, if you make a practice of sin, if you enjoy it and never forsake it, if you don't hate your sin, there's a somber warning. And that is eternal destruction. That is way worse than having 38 years of being lame, of going the rest of your life and enjoying your sin. There is a consequence. So let none of us be fooled today that you can't keep Jesus and cling tightly to your sin, so don't be fooled. You can't hold on to both. So when Jesus comes and gives you new life, let us forsake sin. Let's turn from it. But I don't know if you picked up on it. There's no resolution to this man's life. We don't see in this passage, right? This man then goes out and forsakes his sin and follows Jesus. We don't hear that. And so I think John does that intentionally because it forces you and I reading it today and anyone else who has ever read this to say, I don't know what happened to that man. What about me? What about me? Have I confessed Christ? Have I received new life? Am I willing to turn from my sin and follow him? So let me ask you as we close. Will you walk in new life today? Will you sin no more by the power of God? 
Because that's the only way that you can live this new life that Christ offers is by God's help. Let us go to him now in prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that through Christ, we are offered new life. That he seeks out the lost, that he helps the hopeless, and he gives new life. If there is anyone here today that you, through the power of your spirit, have been been convicting of sin, would you help them to reach out to somebody? To their friend that they came with, or if they don't know anybody, then maybe they, they would just talk to the person next to them and say, I've heard about this new life. I need it because I've been seeking the pools of healing that I've been searching for and nothing has helped. Would you bring new life today? And for those who are your children that you have sought out, that you have redeemed and given new life, would you help us to sin no more? Help us to hate sin. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.